This is undisciplined, academic by nature, undisciplined in practice. Now let's get into it. Matthew, have you heard the story of George Washington chasing his slave around town trying to catch her? I don't think I have. Of course, you might know that slave owners were very anxious about retrieving their slave properties, and they used numerous means to do so, right? In 1796, in May 1796, the Pennsylvania Gazette found an advertisement offering $10 to any person who would apprehend only judge, Hmm. an enslaved woman who had fled from President George Washington's Virginia plantation that we know as Mount Vernon. Mm -hmm. The notice described her in detail, and we should pay attention to this detail, right? Yes. She was described as a light mulatto girl, much freckled, with very black eyes and bushy black hair. Mm. It also defined her skills. She had skills of mending clothes and that she may attempt, quote, to escape by water. Hmm. It is probable she will attempt to pass as a free woman and has, it said, wherewithal to pay her passage. Hmm. She did indeed, true to form, board a ship that was called the Nancy and made it to New Hampshire where she later married a free black sailor, although she herself was never freed by the Washingtons and remained a fugitive for a very long time. Mm. Now, Alison Mayer, in looking at the Freedom on the Move database from Cornell University, which is a database of fugitive slave ads, highlights thousands of other stories like the ones of around Oni Judge, right? So this wasn't abnormal to post no. an ad. No. And it's 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 interesting, right? Yeah. As we're going to discover in a, in a in a multiplicity of ways. For instance, in 1836, a group of black women stormed the courtroom of Chief Justice Shaw to whisk two enslaved women, Eliza Small and Polly Ann Bates to safety. The two had been freed on a writ of habeas corpus brought by the abolitionist Samuel Sewall and the British and Foreign Anti-Slavery Society after their master's agent had them apprehended aboard a ship. When the agent tried again to have them remanded under the provisions of the federal fugitive slave law, the women on Sewall's signal acted. The abolition riot involving the women and the alleged dereliction of duty of Sheriff C.P. Sumner, a man of anti-slavery convictions, and Sumner's father led Northern conservatives to warn of a new face in the abolitionist war against slavery. There are other such famous cases, such as the Jerry Rescue. On October 1st, 1851, which involved the public rescue of a fugitive slave who had been arrested the same day in Syracuse, New York, during the anti-slavery, check this out, Liberty Party. Did you know we had a Liberty Party? I did not. During their state convention. The escaped slave was William Henry, a 48-year-old Cooper from Missouri, Hmm. nearby state, Mm -hmm. who called himself Jerry. The seizure of Anthony Burns, also a fugitive from Virginia in Boston. Burns was the third escaped slave to be seized in the city after the passage of the fugitive slave law as a part of the Compromise of 1850. 
And in the wake of the unsuccessful attempt to rescue Burns, Stowell, along with many others, were arrested. Deputy Guardian Burns was killed and others were arrested. And there would be a sermon that would be preached calling upon fellow citizens to make Worcester a Canada, meaning a safe haven for slaves. Mm. So this is a context for which, you know, much is going on. The sheer preponderance of runaways, of runaway black people, people who were trapped and caricatured by the law, only appearing as human in its presence and in the archives appearing as fugitives. It is for this reason that while we know very little about runaways, except for the very few details that was provided by those who dehumanize and criminalize them. Mm -hmm. But these details, like the one that Washington had printed about Oni Judge, about her skills, about what she looked like, reveals the hidden politic among slaves, Hmm. right? And the importance of fugitivity in the broader struggle for abolition and emancipation. And it reveals a kind of genius and a kind of co-optation of the environment in making it an accomplice for their freedom, right? For instance... On September 3rd in 1838, dressed in a sailor's uniform and carrying papers provided by a free black seaman, Frederick Douglass, we all know. I've heard of him. The black daddy of abolition, most photographed man of the 19th century. (laughs) Very, you know, a student told me the other day that I said in my class that he was the Michael B. Jordan of his day. (laughs) (laughs) So Frederick Douglass um, escaped aboard a train bound for... Maryland, And from there, he continued to New York and eventually um, Massachusetts, where he settled. As he would later remark to audiences, quote, I appear before you this evening as a thief and a robber. I stole this head, these limbs, this body from my master, and I ran off with them. So if we look at slave narratives and other writings in the 19th century, They are replete with black people performing these kinds of contrived visions of freedom. C. Riley Snorton in her book, Black on Both Sides, notes these instances that specifically involve fugitives undertaking cross-gender escape. Hmm. Can you imagine that? We have so much uproar around transgender (laughs) Right. right now, but a lot of what these fugitives were doing, right, they were bending gender in in terms of their escape. For instance, William Still, who wrote The Underground Railroad in 1872, illustrated the nature of black performativity through the various ways runaways enacted a future freedom as they fled enslavement. Right. And so Snorton focused on Still's exploration of the escape of Clarissa Davis in 1854, the escape of Marianne Weems of the District of Columbia in 1855, and the famous transatlantic escape of Ellen Craft, who at first went by the alias William Johnson and then by William Craft of Georgia in 1848 to point out how gender obfuscation undergirded performance during the fugitive passage. Hmm. Even Harriet Tubman who came to embody fugitivity, right? Mm -hmm. We associate her with the Underground Railroad. Once disguised a black man as a bonneted woman in order to obstruct his arrest and re-enslavement by Northern deputies. Harriet Jacobs, who 
is another one with a famous narrative, described her own escape in 1842 in her narrative, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, noting, quote, I wore my sailor's clothes, I had blackened my face with charcoal, I passed several people whom I knew, the father of my children came so near that I brushed against his arm, but he had no idea who it was. Thus, fugitives who achieve freedom through subterfuge would be forced to make continued pretensions, right? And according to Catherine McKittrick in her book, Demonic Grounds, Black Women and the Cartographies of Slavery, the life and death of black subjects was dependent on the unmapped knowledges, while the roots gave fugitives an invisible agency. Mm. If a successful escape could have guaranteed the full benefits accorded to those who experience liberty as a natural right, then perhaps such pretenses would not have persisted. But by the 19th century, the specter of runaways would come to define what Manisha Sinha described in her book of the same title, The Slave's Cause. In a burgeoning abolitionist movement, the drama surrounding the enslaved unveiling of their scars of bondage would come to serve as a kind of cultural touchstone for thinking through the vagaries of black performativity and freedom. As running away in a white supremacist society specifically necessitated a kind of performance, it produced new possibilities as it pushed against the limitations placed upon the enslaved. It inadvertently created a form of theater, Mm. in which black escapees attempted to subvert race and gender as they publicly performed a false identity that would widely be assumed to be that of a free person. Mm. That takes genius. Yeah. That takes knowledge. They're creating this. So slaves run away frequently and in doing so displayed considerable political sophistication. How did they know where to run to and where not to go? Right. All these safe spaces, all these laws that would make sure that they would be arrested upon sight. Especially assuming that many of them were illiterate, couldn't read. Exactly. How were they choosing the places to run? How did they, did they have a map? Can they read maps? (laughs) (laughs) You know, How how do they know this, right? So this is considerable political sophistication in discerning the social geography. Where's slavery? Where's freedom? And though the United States came to regard itself as a land of freedom, slaves through fugitivity offers a counter-narrative. This land bound up in slavery as it was, was not their home. And so fugitivity brought them to the liberated geographies of where? Places like Spanish Florida, right? Black Seminoles, Indian Territory, Haiti, Canada, Northern states that symbolize free spaces for the 19th century tenants, places like Philadelphia. British West Indies was also valorized by African Americans as well as, you know, as were places like Canada, where they came to find, they came to found various free black communities, Wilberforce and others up in Canada. So, Historians are now investing, uh, investigating the Underground Railroad into Mexico. Hmm. So all these routes, Catherine McKittrick sees these different routes in the Underground Railroad as material and psychic maps containing the signified secret knowledge and secret knowledge sharing contained around a community connected through abolitionism. 
there's that's like a fraternity and sorority. They have a specific set of knowledge, mm-hmm. specific set of skills <laughs> <laughs> that a lot of us would not be able to perhaps decipher, but they be, being a part of that community was able to access and decipher. Enslaved people in the Deep South took this closer route through unforgiving forests. Did you know they settled in the Great Dismal um, Swamp? Mm, no. Impenetrable, they thought. They built communities in there. Marunage, they came to form maroon communities of runaways in those spaces. Um, while we don't know the exact number of fugitive slaves, some of them were recaptured, but they became so ubiquitous that Samuel Cartwright diagnosed slaves' tendency to run away as a disease. Hmm. Drepetomania. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine? This is the land of freedom. Right. People are running away to freedom, and instead of seeing it as a reflection of the values of Americanism, Samuel Cartwright describes this as a disease. Mm. So we have all this documentation of African-Americans who fled to Canada. Today, historians count the numbers of fugitive slaves in 1830 at around 150,000, higher than older estimates, to the point where Canada became virtually synonymous with freedom, became a safe haven, especially after the British abolished slavery in 1833. Upper Canada, by statute in 1793 in Upper Canada and through judicial decision in 1800 in Lower Canada. So African-Americans began to organize themselves after running away in Canada in churches, in anti-slavery organization. They escaped to other places, forming black communities in Philadelphia, Cincinnati, and other cities where racial violence may not have threatened their well-being, right? Filling a lot of different spaces. And that sets the context And so I'm very pleased today. This is one of my favorite persons on earth (laughs) to talk to Dr. Michael Pierce, a historian at the University of Arkansas. His current work looks at race and labor in post-war Arkansas with a particular emphasis on the Little Rock Central High Crisis. Welcome to the Undisciplined Podcast, Dr. Pierce. Thank you, Dr. Panton. How did you arrive at the story of Nelson Hackett? I'm not sure when I first encountered the story of Nelson Hackett. You know, I, I came to the University of Arkansas almost by happenstance. I followed my wife here. She's the star. She's, <laughs> you know it's her. True. It's true. It's true. <laughs> and, and so I, I just, you know, started teaching Arkansas history because that's what the history department needed at the time. And I made myself so annoying that they gave me a, a tenure track job. I'm an American historian, a U.S. historian. And um, it's just easier to look at the area in which you live. I, you know, I could keep working on projects in Ohio, but, you know, that, that, that becomes practically difficult. Right. And, and so I, I started looking around. I started teaching Arkansas history. And I, I came across the, an essay in the 1950s about Nelson Hackett. It was in the Arkansas Historical Quarterly, and, and it really focused – not on Nelson Hackett, but uh, the international implications of what his flight from Fayetteville in 1841 meant, and especially the Webster-Ashburton Treaty of 1842 and how it impacted the British decision to make the extradition of enslaved people back to the United States almost impossible. 
In essence, we've known, we historians, have known for quite a while, for, for 60, 70 years, that Nelson Hackett played a, a really instrumental role or set into motion the events that really solidified, ensured that Canada would be a haven for those escaping slavery in the United States. So that's been known. So when you first encountered that piece, was that like during your first years as a historian? You know, and what I, did you do with it? Did you file it away? Like, well, oh, that's interesting. Well, well like, like a lot of historians, I, I keep, a fi- I keep of things course, on file. All the articles I'm going to write. All the articles <laughs> I'm going to write. And, and, and you know, it, it used to be, I'm so old, it used to be in a manila envelope. And and now no, it's it, a whole <laughs> no no now now it's 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 on a computer it's it, and, and so it, it, this is my, my investigations my interests were, were sort of pre digital uh-huh. um, you know in the sense that it was a, a Xerox copies yeah. of, of 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 these documents and I would just come across strange things here and there. You file it away. I file it away and file it away. <laughs> and about three or four years ago, Kathy Sloan, another colleague of ours from the history department, putting together a grant to um, launch a public humanities program. And it's called Arkansas Stories. And, and she was looking for, for stories to tell about Arkansas about migrations and the movements of people. And, you know, George Sabo talked about some pre-Columbian migrations and movements and, and how indigenous people responded to climate. And right. Sean Tutan talks, of, and, and, and Joshua Youngblood, they talked about the Trail of Tears. And they talked about the, the Cherokees that came through Fayetteville. Right. We are very international. Well, we're a very national, local place. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 you know, um, uh, Kim Sexton um, and some others and Joshua Youngblood worked on um, um, captivity. I'm just impressed that you remembered the folder. What? <laughs> that, that, that you had the story tucked away. I had it. Well, I, I had pieces of it. Mm-hmm. And one of the things w- when I started putting things in the Manala envelope or the folder, if you want to look at old newspapers— you had to go through ILL, and, and, and you had to pull up microfilm. ILL is interlibrary loan. And, and, and so, which is, as, as you know, a hard, laborious, Listen, time-consuming process. The university owes me glasses. And th- they owe a lot of us. When I started this project, <laughs> I did not need reading glasses. Now I do. <laughs> Let's back up a little bit, right? So you have all the stuff that you've found and scoured archives like a true historian, like a sleuth, like a detective. So you you have all these sources, Mike. But I want to have context of, can you give us the context in which a person like Nelson Hackett would exist in Arkansas in the 19th century? Okay, so, you know, Nelson Hackett doesn't appear in the historical record until about 1840. And over in the county courthouse, or the old courthouse, in the archives, I tracked down two bills of sale. So it's very interesting that he exists as a human being only in the court records 
and only via property. Property, as he, in the bills of sale. That's the only way he. Well, that's how he first comes. That's how he comes alive or enters he, your the imagination of the public. Yeah, absolutely. As property, not as a human. Not in fa- as a in human. fact, when he's sold the first time, and, and this is in eighteen forty, he is exchanged for a younger enslaved male named Moses, I think about nine or ten years old, and and a mule. And and so what you see there is the trading of a human being for a beast of burden. No, but this is the cost, right? Yeah. How do you calculate the life of a person that transmute into a bag of cotton or a mule? And, and, And then he's sold six months later. And there's actually a, a monetary value. How much? Um, $1,000. He was sold first from a guy named Jacob Cartwright to a man named Willis Wallace. And then six months later, Willis Wallace sells Nelson Hackett to um, Willis Wallace's brother, Alfred Wallace. And th- that is who owned Nelson Hackett at the time Nelson Hackett escaped in 1841. So to be sure, we're not seeing Nelson Hackett enter into our imaginations through his birth certificate or through his family who is saying this is who he is. We're seeing him enter into our imagination through bills of sales, him entering as property. In fact, all throughout his, his, life. his life, yeah, he becomes property, criminal. Um, he is someone who is acted upon. Yeah. He is someone who things happen to. And we, we never hear Nelson Hackett's voice. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so when we reconstruct Nelson Hackett's life, we have to do that through narrators that are normally hostile. Yeah. And, but sometimes um, we can narrate his life through abolitionists. Right. Who are at least sympathetic. Yeah. But they, they might not have the same. The uh, same sensibilities, of course, uh, as him speaking about himself. Exactly. Or, um, you know, we, we, we lose his humanity yeah. in all of this. He becomes an object. He becomes an object. That other people are, are active. It, even the most sympathetic descriptions that we have of Nelson Hackett. You can see the abolitionists trying to fit him into a certain mold to use him as part of a a broader campaign. And, you know, and you understand why they are doing that. Yet at the same time, it obscures who he is and what he felt and why he acted. But there are things that as historians— I think it was Richard Blackett who, who talks about— um, Richard Blackett was my advisor at Vanderbilt. You know, he's probably the mm-hmm. big, big guy when it comes to fugitivity. He's the fugitivity. foremost expert on fugitivity. And, and so what, what he says is, you know, what we have to realize is that—keep in mind is that the action, the escape itself tells you almost everything that you can gather about yeah. these fugitives. It's an important question, right, in terms of conducting research and how do we get to, the, to, to get at what those who left very few records, 
how do we get to their voice and to not continue to render them as objects, right? Like they were in these bills of sales. And how do we get to their individuality? How do we get to their stories? Can you tell the story of somebody through those records that they were caught up in? You have to look at the, those kinds of decisions, what kinds of movements that they're making in order to understand their story. Yeah, and, and one of the things about Nelson Hackett is he went to a very particular place. Yeah. He went to a, a place in Canada West called Chatham. But he leaves, before you get to that, he leaves Arkansas. Can you tell us that? He leaves Arkansas. What does he take with him? What okay. route does he take? Yeah. Uh, so so he, he leaves Arkansas in, in sometime July 16th, 17th, 18th of 1841. We, we don't really know for sure. In fact, some of the court documents say the 16th, some say the 17th. He was some sick of being sold. Well, well and, <laughs> and in fact, and there are two narratives of his escape. And one narrative is the narrative told by Alfred Wallace, the man who claims to own him, the man who had the piece of paper that said he owns. And what Alfred Wallace said is this. Um, Alfred Wallace said, you know, I was was away on business for a while, and Nelson Hackett just ran away. He hinted at, but never really formally claimed that Nelson Hackett raped a white girl. But you know, when push came to shove, they never made a formal accusation of that, but mm-hmm. they, they spread rumors but of that. But that's usually the go-to narrative, that, right, exactly. as we've seen in lynching and, 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 and so, so But on his way out of town, Nelson Hackett took a coat made out of beaver, a beaver hat, a watch from a neighbor, gold watch and chain, also a saddle and Alfred Wallace's finest racehorse. So what does story two say? And and story two, and and this is told by uh, an abolitionist, a white abolitionist named Charles Stewart. And Charles Stewart interviewed Nelson Hackett in Detroit. So he's ventriloquizing. Yes, yes. (laughs) Yes. And, of course, Charles Stewart has his own agenda. Mm -hmm. And he tells it this way, that Alfred Wallace and Nelson Hackett were attending a horse race. Some distance from Fayetteville and whatever some distance means. And they were at this horse race. And a horse race was, it was quite a scene. It was more than a horse race. You would have prize fights. Rumbunctious. And and you would have lots of drinking. And it was just a a very chaotic event. And after the the race, the horse race, I, I think one of Alfred Wallace's horses raced. Alfred Wallace says, I have business someplace else. And he says to um, Nelson Hackett, why don't you take this stuff and go back to Fayetteville? (laughs) Okay, sir. And and so, um, as Charles Stewart says, and, you know, Nelson Hackett found himself some miles away from home with all of this stuff, and he just went um, he just left. He, I would have said I was lost. And, and, and <laughs> I got he just, lost in Canada. And, and so, and, and Nelson Hackett did that. We know he left Fayetteville, or at least Arkansas, sometime in the middle of July of 1841. And we ha- there is an account of his flight. The important thing is that he knew where to cross the Mississippi River. Yeah, that's, it's very interesting, right, in how historians 
like yourself might, or those of us who work in the 19th century, might read into the genius of the enslaved by the choices that they made, right? I mean, this case, what he chose to take, the direction he chose to go, where he chooses to cross. Absolutely. Right? And he chooses to cross the Mississippi River in Marion City, Missouri. And Marion City doesn't exist anymore. I think it, it fell into the, the Mississippi the river. <laughs> river at one point. But Marion City was founded by white abolitionists. Most of the people who lived in around there had abolitionist tendencies, as one of the local historians writes. And it was a, a famous place. So, so Marion City was this famous place for fugitives to cross. They crossed Marion City and went to Quincy, Illinois, which was a, sort of another hotbed of the Underground Railroad. And are you getting at how Nelson Hackett would have known this? Well, you know, we, we have no clue. Right? But, but we can suggest, right? We, like we Julia Scott says, a common wind. A common wind. A common wind um, blowing gossip among the enslaved in the grapevine. Well, you know, uh, possum up the gum tree. <laughs> possum up the gum tree. Well, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, and that, that comes from... Sojourner's Battle Hymn. Yes. And it comes from the marching song of the 1st Arkansas Colored Infantry. Right. Um, and, and we're talking about there's a secret network among mm-hmm. enslaved people that, that white people throughout the South don't know about, but there are communication networks amongst enslaved people. It's important to, to go back to Fayetteville for a minute. Fayetteville had about 450 people in it according to the 1840 census. About 120 of them were enslaved. And that means that Fayetteville had an enslaved population of about 28%, which put it well above the rest of the state at the time, which was about 20% enslaved. And so we, we have this idea that Northwest Arkansas is somehow different than the Delta. But in, in Fayetteville itself, but Nelson Hackett was also the only adult male. Um, most of the population was children and women of childbearing age. And so there's some evidence to suggest that, you know, most, most enslaved men in this area were not urban slaves like Nelson Hackett. And Nelson Hackett worked for Alfred Wallace, who owned a grocery store. He was more of a, a personal servant, a, a valet. And so, so that, that means that he also he was taken to horse races. Mm-hmm. He had knowledge of the geography. Of the geography. Um, he would talk to people in a wider network. And in, and in this way, he, he gained these types of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm sure he shared those, that knowledge with the enslaved community in Fayetteville. But the other thing to remember is Fayetteville doesn't become settled until, well, it doesn't be really 1828, mm-hmm. 1827. And, and what that means is that if you are an adult, enslaved person in Fayetteville, you were born someplace else. You were born someplace else. And so you also come to Fayetteville with knowledge of other places. places. Mm -hmm. And and so so there's lots of weird 
things going on and, and, and how these, this knowledge and this intelligence is gathered. Because people think that enslaved people, because literacy was banned, right, that they don't have knowledge. Right. But they create their own knowledge, their form of literacy. It's like white people who go to African-American neighborhoods and like, hi, my name is Josh. And you don't know the lingo of that space. You know, that's a part of the literacy of that community that because of white supremacy, you might think the white lingo is the, is the, the, only. the only way of communicating. But no, that also exists as well. <laughs> and you are looking crazy. So they have their own knowledge. So, so they have their own sets of knowledge and they have their own networks of communication. That, and that, it that, reveals a kind of genius about absolutely. them as people. Absolutely. What we, we think is that he basically um, headed north, he followed the roads up through what is now, well, what was then Springfield, Missouri, and then due north and crosses Missouri River around Boonville, and then heads east by northeast up to Marion City. And as I said before, Marion City was this sort of Marion City and across the river at Quincy, Illinois, was sort of a hotbed of, of the Underground Railroad. It was a place that lots of fugitives crossed the river, and, and, and there were sympathizers on both sides. In fact, two weeks before Nelson Hackett crosses, three white men are arrested and put in jail for helping fugitives cross the the Mississippi River. And these men, George Thompson, Allenson Worth, and I forget his last name is Burr. I forget his name. They become martyrs in this larger abolitionist story. And they're actually sitting in a jail in, outside of Marion City in Marion County, and, and they're writing in their diaries, we heard four more slave, enslaved people cross the Mississippi River today. Mm. And, you know, and one of them might have been Nelson Hackett. We don't right. know. Yeah. But, but at that— They're hearing these rumors. They're, they're, yeah. And, Historians love rumors. I know. Oh, my gosh. And, 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 so, and so, you know, this is a place that mm -hmm. enslaved people in Missouri and Arkansas knew about, and they knew— they would have allies. They would have people, abolitionists, both black and white, that would help them cross the Mississippi River mm -hmm. and send them on their way, whether from Quincy to Galesburg or to Princeton or, or any of the other towns along the Underground Railroad. Railroad. Yeah, and one more thing I wanted to say about rumors and gossip, right? Like people like, you know, as a historian, you love these kinds of things because if you're studying people who don't have access to what you call formal channels of communications, this is how they create their own networks of communication and sharing that knowledge through gossip, the grapevine, you know, all of this kind of stuff. But, but the, the, the other part of this that I think is worth mentioning is, is that when, when Nelson Hackett left, when he escaped, he, when, when, when he fled, it, it took a few days, but Alfred Wallace sent people to go look for him. And we have their accounts. And we know that they couldn't track him. On the next episode of Undisciplined, what happens to Nelson Hackett once he makes it to Canada. Wallace grabs two justices of the peace and goes and barges where in on where Nelson Hackett is staying and they beat the crap out of him. 
Michael Pierce is an associate professor of history at the University of Arkansas. Undisciplined is hosted by Dr. Karee Banton and produced by me, Matthew Moore. Our associate producer is Sean Shoemaker. 